Okay, vamos, let's do it. So thank you, Daniel, for returning and uh, very much looking forward to having you back and uh, jumping down the rabbit hole once again. Yeah, thanks. Good. Good to be back here as well. And uh, let's go deeper even now. Yeah, so I want to focus more on you this time. Um, we spoke a bit more broadly last time we were together and uh, wanted to unpack your, your personal journey. So you were a UN consultant for environmentalism. That's, is that right? Is that the best way to put it? Yeah, that's how you could describe how I uh, started my professional life was as a consultant for the United Nations. And my goal was to protect the environment in one way or the other. And the way that I chose was uh, on the legal side of things. And uh, I chose the geographic region of the Caspian Sea. So I was in um, a uh, secretariat uh, that was uh, responsible for the coordination of the five riparian countries of the Caspian Sea to protect uh, the environment at large. And uh, they did it through a treaty, uh, in, uh, yeah, an international treaty. And uh, I was coordinating uh, uh, the, this treaty together in, in the team, of the secretariat. Cool, cool. Uh, so if we rewind, like, but I've sort of got, the question is twofold, I guess. What, what was your original motivation for um, an ambition to go into this line of work? And did you always have a uh, connection with nature? Like, was you always motivated by that environmental narrative in your mind uh, or did that develop later how how did that look that inspiration that that sort of was really fueling you at the beginning as you're going into your studies and and looking at these internships and things yeah well that could go a long way back but let's start maybe yes i was always interested and connected with nature in one way or the other um, also during my childhood, I spent, uh, and then thanks to my parents, thanks to my grandparents and so on, that uh, made it possible for me to really stay and be a long time in nature, uh, like not just for a little day trip and then back home uh, to safety, but, but stay there also overnight uh, in, in tents, uh, uh, in the woods and stuff like this. So that gave me this connection to nature much better, of course, than I would otherwise have gotten. Yeah, so that was always there. Um, and then during my school years, I was mostly interested in philosophy, politics and history. And I, I wanted to understand uh, at the time why it is that we humans are not living peacefully together. Uh, what, what's all the fuss about? <laughs> I wanted to know about this uh, in depth. So I did what I could in school to get some knowledge there. And then when I started university, I... I realized that if I want to understand how the world works and why maybe we are not peaceful, uh, I have to study economics and, um, and law because that is sort of um, ruling or at the, at the heart of our society uh, working together in one way or the other. So that's why I chose my studies of, what was it? Uh, German and European economic law, it was called. Yeah, and uh, so, but but in the back of my mind was always also that uh, we don't seem to do very well in terms of um, keeping our resources that we need to be alive. Uh, we, we don't do that very well. We don't maintain them very well. 
the opposite was true that the climate change topic was uh, back on in the 90s already very much um, the biodiversity decline i read countless articles and books about this and i thought well this is the challenge of uh, my generation um, to somehow find a way to live sustainably and this also fit very well with my studies i thought because also at the heart of this is i thought <laughs> economics and the legal system. So let's let's do something about these two systems, or I want to be involved in these two systems to see how we can put it on more sustainable and peaceful uh, grounds. So this is how I studied, uh, chose the, the the studies that I took. Perfect. So you were very much motivated by a, a very profound and deep question, right? Like, why are humans not able to cooperate and be peaceful and how do we get to the crux of that issue which is that I, I mean i don't think there's a bigger question for society at large right like that is that's really the the million dollar question so uh, i find that fascinating that from from such a young age it's it's always been been a motivating factor what what led you to think that the UN was an answer in, in answering that question? Yeah. Well, yes, I also sometimes thought, what, why am I even thinking about this? Because I noticed when I was younger that uh, others don't seem to be concerned by this question too much. <laughs> so what's what's wrong here? What, what, why am I concerned? <laughs> what do I want to know? I was always drawn also to books and uh, and and stories that that deal with the with the whole of it. You know, with the whole of society. Yeah. Uh, like I like Goethe, for example, with in his Faust number two was talking big. You know, I, I like this kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> strange, but uh, but I did. So I, I just followed it. <laughs> yeah. So why the UN? Um, I thought the UN was is, is a, was a beautiful institution uh, because um, what I was also fascinated by when I studied history was, of course, the. Um, um, well, fascinated, uh, well, in, in a negative way in this sense, uh, it were the big wars uh, of the 20th century, like World War One and World War Two, especially. And um, the atrocities that happened and in hindsight when you look back at it you think what was wrong with these people why <laughs> and then from these uh, atrocities emerged uh, the united nations first the league of nations but that wasn't helpful and then after second the united nations uh, formed and it was it was the first time in human history that all nation states well, they weren't formed uh, at all times, but at that time, the nation states could talk together in a forum about global peace. And also, it, because it has to do with peace, uh, with environment protection, because one um, has an effect on the other. So I thought uh, taking it on from the macro scale, from the United Nations, a beautiful body that formed after the most devastating wars of human history, that's why I want to work. Because it seems like there I can make a make a difference, make a dent, uh, and see how uh, globally we can achieve peace and environment protection. Yeah, definitely. And so, could you explain how the UN looks? So, from that, I take it it's a round table and an opportunity for all parties to at least discuss things, which, as you mentioned, we've not really had in the past. Right? There was never this forum where 
everyone could meet and and bash their heads together and and debate and discuss some global issues so how how does that work you know what what does that look like how how uh, has your opinion changed on on how effective that is and yeah what's what's that evolution that you've gone through by virtue of sort of getting to look under the hood of of how the mechanics of it work in in more of a practical experience yeah yeah, in the beginning, of course, I was, uh, as I said, fascinated by it uh, because I thought that this is indeed the only body that uh, brings all nation states and that's why all people uh, together. Uh, so I was hopeful to find some answers there, but uh, to to um, take this before I get to the full point, uh, yes, uh, I thought this was the option and my opinion changed <laughs> in the meantime. Uh, so uh, I don't necessarily believe now that the UN is the approach that would help us to achieve peace in the world, as well as to uh, protect uh, the environment uh, for us. What Not are the some UN of the limitations the then? Alone. Sorry to interrupt. What, what are some of the limitations yeah. that you find with that dynamic of, uh, you know, each state having a representative and coming to the table and 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 discussing things what what's the limitations of that model well the limitations is uh, nation states themselves uh, and 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 the human mind which hasn't matured enough uh, to be able to use that forum in an effective way so um but but at first the idea sounds great right you bring the nation states uh, together um, and uh, let them talk, come up with decisions that are as binding as you can develop on the global scale. And you accept that after World War II, there were some dominant powers uh, that uh, now rule uh, the scene. Uh, you accepted that for the sake of freedom at the time. But the shortcoming of this is clear. Of course, power structures have shifted in the world, but still the power structure of after World War II uh, remains uh, in the UN system. So the um, uh, it, it isn't really representing the current uh, global power situation. And also, uh, yeah, why would you have power situations is, is the question that I then put myself also, because these these games, these diplomatic games uh, that are fought in the UN, first of all, don't really make a big difference, because in the end, nation states uh, go ahead themselves more often than, than not. Um, and then secondly, why would you have these diplomatic uh, games being played all the time? It doesn't seem very mature to me. Yeah, definitely. I guess the natural question is how how is it possible to balance every country's self-interest, right? Like everyone's going to have competing interests and the way the game theory evolves and, and politicking and diplomacy, you know, everyone's trying to get leverage over everyone else. It's such a combative mindset that each nation state is in everyone's fighting for their share you know it's very much like a a bit of a free-for-all and yes we're blessed to have a bit of a round table where at least we're talking about things for the first time in humanity but ultimately like you say what where does it lead to for example is it is it the case am i right in saying that one country if one country vetoes something you know that's not going to get put forward so i guess that are uh, that that begs the question you know how how do we 
coordinate as as groups extremely large groups of people you know do we need a hundred percent on everything should should 60 percent voting be enough and and you know the 40 percent that disagree just have to shut up and 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 deal with it like what what do you think of that dynamic yeah well i think the uh, un system as it evolved can for sure be improved um and especially it has to reflect the let's say the world uh, people situation at that at any given time. I don't want to say power structure anymore because I don't. Uh, power always uh, involves uh, like put, exercising force on someone else. More often, that's right. why I don't want to use it. So, but um, it doesn't reflect the current reality because uh, there are five countries uh, that are permanent members of the Security Council. If we go into details of how the UN is set up, and those have veto rights. Uh, for, so for anything that you bring forward in the General Assembly of the UN and then into the Security Council, where there are also other countries than these five, um, but when one of these five countries, well, China, Russian, uh, Russian Federation, uh, France, uh, Great Britain and, and, and the USA, if, they, if one of these is disagreeing with it, it will not happen. So you might argue that, okay, well, after World War II, these five countries, should we give them power? Okay, why not? We, we can set up the UN like this. Let's just do it, you know, uh, yep. better than not having the UN. <laughs> but right. now, let's a couple of years, uh, decades uh, later, uh, you wonder, hmm, why, why does not Nigeria have a veto right or uh, South Africa or Indonesia or India with so many people uh, being affected and, and living in these countries? So uh, this is one question that... Uh, has bothered uh, the UN for since the inception, basically, but uh, it couldn't be resolved. The UN was since 1946, basically reforming itself. Right. And uh, every new secretary general has some sort of agenda uh, for him to reform the United Nations and to make it more democratic. And uh, look at the UN, how it is now. It has grown. Yes, there are more under... Um, organizations and uh, new funds and yes but the basic governance structure hasn't changed at all so that's where you want to start do you think it's even possible to democratize that power structure that that organizational structure hmm. well you could come up with with a system that uh, is more inclusive for sure uh, but here we get to a point that I also would like to make, that is, <clears throat> even if you come up with the most democratic uh, way possible to organize 190-something countries, um, you would still face the problem of every country fighting for its own self-interest, and, uh, and, and the outcome is uh, subpar. Yeah, definitely. How... Have you got any examples of, of when you started to question this is not the right way or was there any sort of dominoes that that, that particularly rememberable to, to you that you sort of thought this is this is a bit dysfunctional or this is not in alignment with with my image I had at the UN before I before I joined? Yes, there were uh, some general examples from the news and uh, that maybe everyone could be aware of, uh, things like the um, conflict in, in, in Syria uh, related to the um, Islamic State that was forming there. And you, you wondered, well, is, 
is the UN not able to form a sort of alliance <laughs> to uh, contain uh, that that issue? But no, it doesn't seem doesn't seem possible. Or you have a conflict in in Yemen, for example, that uh, that goes on since quite some time already, and. Uh, and you wonder, is the UN able to bring some stability in that region? No, isn't. Uh, you have uh, the situation in Africa, um, Mali, and so on. Uh, you have Palestina and Israel. And you think, <laughs> so we have the UN. But does it do anything in these conflicts? Do we get any further? No, uh, I, I don't see it personally. <laughs> uh, so so from this, you could question, is it working or isn't, isn't it? Um, there are so many beautiful aspects of the UN, but I'm pointing out now what I think doesn't work, right, as you asked. Um, and then in my personal case, when it comes to environmental protection, the Caspian Sea, where, which I saw more closely, uh, the story is pretty clear. Huh? We have five countries. The sea is beneficial to all of them for various reasons, economy, of course, but also livelihood of people. Um, and uh, you want to protect it as best as, as possible from your own uh, actions, exploiting oil resources, gas resources, and so on. And you come together but and, and want to solve certain issues. Um, for example, one easy thing would be you prevent oil accidents in the or, and gas exploitation ex, uh, accidents in the region because um, yeah when this when this happens then uh, the coast is immediately affected because it isn't too far the sea is not so big um, and the sea is very flat uh, in the north only about six meters average deep so if you have an oil spill there it has more devastating effect than, than in the deep sea so you have reasons to prepare for accidents like this so that the nature would not be too affected. Uh, so you can come together and have a preparedness uh, plan uh, for when an accident happens. Uh, this country has the option to help this country in that way. Uh, they harmonize their rules and procedures. Uh, this country is giving assistance to another country with these and these for the use of this equipment uh, by this and this much and then this and these regulations. So I thought it's pretty straightforward to, uh, to just introduce that oil spill preparedness plan uh, and, uh, and then move on with more important tasks almost, right? <laughs> but even this is too complicated for countries to, um, to resolve or to agree on. And it's only five countries in this region. So there was always some uh, country who had a different political um, intention in, in the background that sometimes we didn't even know of. Uh, and, and so there were games played. We want, we want this step to be taken uh, in, in another political sphere. And in order to get there, we have to block it now here for the oil spill uh, preparedness work that we are doing so that this country understands that we are not agreeing everything with them. But if, <laughs> if, 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 if this country wants to uh, um, our help with the oil spill preparedness protocol, they need to unblock it on the other end, a different political topic, for example. And then 
you sit in these negotiations, right? Everything is prepared. The text looks nice. We have discussed it with experts in the in the in the in the area in the field uh, into detail. Everybody knows what really has to happen. So it isn't a question of um, agreeing on the substance anymore. And in the end, the ministries of foreign affairs come into play, and then some representatives representative from a country comes along. And. Uh, got the task to destroy the negotiation and comes in and disagrees with the most basic points that have been made before in countless negotiations, but now it's not true anymore. Uh, just to prevent this um, uh, negotiation to proceed so that a political goal can be achieved in a, in a different political sphere. So with this oil spill preparedness uh, plan and protocol, for example, um, it is on the table now since 20 plus years. Wow. And it's not, I, I personally think it's not difficult to agree on. It makes a lot of sense uh, for countries to have it. And still, it's moving incredibly slow. Now, you could say, ah, oh, yeah. This is international you know, uh, politics, international law. It takes time. Uh, all countries to agree yes but it's only five countries and they all share the same sea and the sea is very useful to them <laughs> so where's the problem <laughs> that's incredible so you you yeah. described that really well like it's just listening to you has made my head spin you know like the the competing interests like how do you harmonize those competing interests especially when everyone's not upfront and honest from the get-go there's ulterior motives it just seems it seems like an impossible task, whether it's preventing oil spills or, you know, uh, addressing genocide in, in Cambodia with Pol Pot. You know, that's that's something that when I went to Cambodia and started learning about what happened there, that was something that blew my mind that the UN was fully aware of what was happening there. But by virtue of them being handicapped and, and having no real teeth to to do anything at the end of the day he was allowed to to live on and and criminally died of old age as, as opposed to you know where he should have been behind bars for the atrocities and it's it's it just seems like an impossible task to to harmonize these competing interests uh, yeah see do do you think that's even possible in in these international relations you know i mean the evidence suggests it's not if that's if that oil preparedness has, has taken 20 years and it's still not really over the finish line that just screams dysfunction does it not yeah that's uh, yeah it, it does scream that <laughs> yes and i was really in the camp of all it's difficult to have these negotiations and it is and everybody does his her best yes they do um but then when you look at decades of negotiation and you have no result you have to also be self-critical and say well you know something is off here we can pat each other uh, on the shoulder and say oh good job yeah yeah we had we had negotiations oh for hours 14 hours oh, we hardly slept we hardly slept oh and it's so difficult to work and i'm such an important person because i do these negotiations in the end if nothing happens the result is not there you have to be uh, realistic you have to look yourself in the mirror and say well you know what a lot of work yes but it doesn't work so let's see if we can change it and um, and, and go about it in, in a different way or become really serious about what we're doing and and don't play games 
Yeah, definitely. So for for balance, what does the UN do well? You mentioned there are some beautiful aspects to it. What what can you speak to in terms of positive aspects? Oh, yeah. Well, there are plenty, of course, uh, because um, in, in the beginning, the UN was only formed to um, be a political um, forum for countries to have uh, yeah, diplomat diplomatic relations uh, so, so that uh, in case a conflict arises, it can be handled in a, in a, in a, in a peaceful manner as best as possible. But then it was seen that many aspects uh, have, an have an effect on uh, this diplomatic, uh, on the success of these diplomatic negotiations. For example, there's development. Uh, if, if a country is uh, not as developed as, as the other and, and wants certain access to resources and so on and so forth, this needs to be um, dealt with. So the United Nations Development Program formed. At some point also, I'm skipping a little bit, uh, it was seen that uh, also the topic of environment is, uh, is um, an element or a topic that creates conflicts between nations. Yeah. So it also has to come into the United Nations sphere and it grew and grew. So they have the population fund, for example, also you have the industrial development organization. So I think the UN is good in the sense that it, um, it realized many points that make countries disagree and can be a cause for, for conflicts and wars. And uh, they formed organizations uh, around it that try to address this globally. And they are funded by the nations themselves. I think this is beautiful. <laughs> uh, so we have a, a bunch of organizations now loosely arranged uh, in, in, a, in a system that nobody understands when you first look at it. But it, it works, yeah? it exists. And so the United Nations Environment Program has its task to address environmental topics uh, worldwide to prevent conflict. That's uh, beautiful. Um, there's more, of course, <laughs> that the UN does well. Um, Let's say, for example, when, when you look at the climate change debate, uh, then uh, it creates funds, for example, that are agreed by all countries in the climate change negotiations that are um, bringing scientists from all over the world uh, together to provide data to that forum uh, that could be used for policymaking. Now you can debate what uh, uh, useful, how useful are these data? Where do they come from? And is there maybe some, uh, is this data produced in a, in a, in a good way or, or not? Are there some elements in there that distort the data? Or, I'm not talking about this topic, but just the fact alone that uh, this organization is able to bring uh, scientists from all over the world together in, in a forum to bring everything to the fore, what affects climate change, and then presents it to the, to the, to the public and to the politicians, and they can do with it whatever they want and base a decision off of it. That's beautiful, these things. It's a global cooperation that hasn't been seen in that way before the United Nations was formed. Yeah, no, I agree in terms of shining the light on important topics and at least at least bringing it into the public consciousness, the public awareness. Uh, I think that is commendable. And I just feel that in principle, it sounds great. In reality, things inevitably get super squirrely because of you know, lobbying and all these, like we've mentioned, the competing interests and who, I, and maybe this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, I don't know if you want to open, but, you know, if, if they are allocating funds to 
certain uh, research or certain ideas like if we we just know how incestuous uh, politics is regarding conflicts of interest and it's uh it, we're all human right we're all subject to biases and and prejudices and uh greed and and all these uh lower lower vibrational natures so it just uh i think it, i think in, in principle it sounds wonderful uh, it's just how does that evolve and and is it is it practically implementable yeah, well, it sounds wonderful, right? So that's why I got involved in this. <laughs> I thought it sounds just wonderful. Global cooperation. Yeah, but as you said, there also um, there are certain powers that are stronger than, than others, and they try to bring their weight into the game a bit more than others. Uh, let's say you are, I don't, I don't like picking examples too much, but let's say you are the United States, right? Uh, you have a big government, uh, you have a government that has an important role worldwide, uh, so you are listened to, and you have also the personnel that uh, is knowledgeable in all types of fields, and in, to your negotiations, you cannot only send a handful of people, you can send, uh, you can send 100 people of delegation of your country, because you have the money, because you have the knowledge, and because because you have uh, uh, the political power behind you that makes others listen. So of course you, you use that, right? So you go into these negotiations with this team that you can hardly beat as, uh, as a small uh, island state in the Pacific, <laughs> because there uh, the person comes that works 50% um, <laughs> on 15 topics instead of only one. And uh, this guy from, let's say, Samoa is sent to this negotiation and he doesn't of course stand a chance against this uh, big, um, team. Now, you could also say the US has uh, more uh, weight uh, for reason, more people live there, and so on and so forth, Samoa, you know. but it's just that you're right, uh, the, the political twists come in. And if you set up, for example, a fund, let's say the Global Environment Facility, and, you just, and, and this Global Environment Facility, for example, has a program for the next uh, seven years, which things are to be funded, then uh, these negotiations in the beginning, which topics are of relevance worldwide, um, and you send people, a big delegation in there as the US, uh, you, you have uh, the outcome, you can twist it or bring it more to your favor because you think that uh, this is an important topic worldwide that we have to address when it comes to environment. And if you come as a small island uh, development states there, uh, the likelihood that you can get your topics of interest through are a little, a little lower. So um, this is just the nature of the game. I see it, but uh, still it's um, big fish eat the little fish and so on. So we have this, <laughs> this uh, competition that is ongoing and it's now being played out on a more, at least from the outside, more civilized sphere like the United Nations. Yeah, I guess I guess that's a question of ethics, maybe, right? Like, should the should there be a disproportionate representation based on, you know, the the GDP, for example, of these countries? Does does Samoa's voice matter less than the US because they are a smaller stakeholder? I'm I'm not gonna you know seek to to answer that necessarily because it's a it's a very complicated question but um it's, it's a it's a really tough question to answer right like how how do you yeah. 
how do you balance all the perspectives of the various stakeholders when some are affected more? I think obviously with the with the climate change narrative, that's something that's being driven a lot, isn't it? You know, these these like you mentioned, the Pacific Pacific Island countries, you know, they're they're potentially going to be uh, affected more by rising sea levels uh, if, if we buy into that narrative and therefore, you know, they're going to be suffering the most from these these uh, these issues, but yet they're not really listened to in the same way that you mentioned, you know, the US is going to be heard at the table. Yeah, this is the case. And now, of course, you can ask yourself this question. Okay, well, three islands uh, drown. Um, is, is that uh, more relevant than um, a nation of 400 million people uh, ha having a, <laughs> a better life? I don't know. It's uh, that, That's debatable. Um, maybe you can organize it in such a way, as you said, to take the population uh, size, for example, or you take the, the GDP, if you think that is the right measurement. Um, but then it would become a bit more democratic, yes. Uh, but I think even that wouldn't resolve uh, the issue, like wouldn't bring peace and sustainability to the world, even if we did democratize it in, in such a way. And then if you look at reality, of course, uh, a country like India with uh, a billion people uh, has, so it should have a big weight, right? Uh, it doesn't, it isn't really represented in the uh, permanent uh, Security Council membership. Interesting. Why, why is that? Why do the nations like that, which has like, that's incredible, really, when you think about it, that's like, what, 10% of the uh no over that like a large portion of the uh population living in one country and they've not they're not on the security council why why is that yeah they, they are on the security council uh when it's their turn uh, but they are not uh part of the permanent uh, members there right okay yeah so so why is that yeah it's historically grown um uh from the Second World War outcome, right? The winning nations, uh, they, they formed the permanent secretariat there, uh, but uh, the permanent members of the Security Council, I mean. And uh, then uh, I, think it, I think it has 15 members and, and then the others are constantly rotating. So India sometimes is in there, um, but uh, it isn't permanently. So yeah, of course, that's what I mean. You could democracy the UN more in when you came up with a different system. Uh, either you have a different type of security council or a complete new structure of how the UN is governed at all. And then it would be more democratic, yes, uh, and more fair. Um, but would the system itself bring global peace and sustainability? I would doubt that it would even. But of course, first step could be to, to make it a bit more just. Okay, that's fair enough. Population representation. Mm -hmm. So pulling, pulling on this uh, environmentalism, Fred, what, in your opinion, is the biggest concern in terms of wasting resources and how does that tie into protecting the planet and protecting the, the environment at large? Uh, that's a big question. Uh, how can we break it down a little bit? Uh, what would you like to... Uh, what, what would be your biggest what would be your biggest concern with the way that humans uh, produce and supply 
energy what 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 comes to the forefront of your mind when when you're looking at that predicament yeah well the, the biggest thing that i think of is that in general we are not living sustainable and sustainable in a way that we can also live in 2000 years from now with the same type of comfort maybe even better comfort but uh with the same type of uh, life uh, resources that that are important for us to thrive uh, so we are not sustainable um and what causes this uh, we are overusing the resources of, of our planet that it's simple as simple as that. Uh, so if we continue uh, on like this, we would not have as many resources anymore that we at some point will need for our uh, survival. And then you can pick uh, your catastrophe uh, that has to happen uh, for bringing the balance back. I, this is a really interesting one because I agree, we, we definitely don't live sustainably, far from it in, in so many different ways, but maybe just dig into what what in your mind is sustainable because something that I've come across recently is this term reliable energy, which I think is a fair point. You know, obviously oil and gas is very reliable in the sense that densely compact energy is able to be released as and when it's needed. You know, it's, it's helped bring people out of poverty in terms of heating homes and um, obviously, so many aspects of our of our lifestyle are built around uh, burning carbon, hydrocarbons rather. So, and and then on the other other side of things, you have a lot more uh, what most people call sustainable methods: wind, solar, etc. But another way to put that is they are quite unreliable. That's that's not really contentious to say. If you're living in the UK like myself solar is not really going to do you too much good you know you're not going to be able to run a national grid on solar so how do we yeah could you break down what you mean about sustainable and how do we balance sustainability with reliability yeah well that is you you touching on the subject of uh, also for use, using any type of resources uh, worldwide, also metals and uh, and um, bio resources uh, from uh, yeah from ecosystems, um, but also of course energy. Yeah, so when we talk about energy, um, yeah, sustainable. What is sustainable there? <laughs> sustainable is an interesting term. I, I think it is good that we have it, but um, it has been thrown around uh, too much lately. Yeah, and it doesn't even mean anything anymore. But it, it, what it in fact means is, which is really beautiful, it means you only use as much as uh, you are sure you the, the earth can reproduce in a couple of years uh, or in a foreseeable future so that other um, next generations are not hurt by your usage of, of the earth. Earth's resources. So, and when you, when you look at fossil energy, uh, oil, coal, gas, then you have to be conscious of what you're doing. Um, so, you are taking energy, condensed energy from deep underground that has been produced over millions of years to have that density. It has been produced over millions of years. You use that to propel your technological, let's say, progress uh, in, in, in the world as a society, as human society, uh, and uh, with the knowledge that it will not last forever. You know, you don't exactly know how long it will last, but, but 
when you look at the consumption and uh, about the dwindling uh, resources that are known and available, you think hmm, there has been there is an end some point. It led us so far, but. Uh, we are basically overusing the planet's resources to a big extent because we cannot produce the same amount of condensed energy uh, for, for the future, or at least we cannot ensure it at this moment in time. So therefore we need to be cautious. So I wouldn't say that it's uh, per se, uh, we shouldn't touch these uh, condensed energy sources, but we should be really conscious of the fact that they don't last forever. And also of the effects, the consumption uh, of those energies has on the ecosystems. And uh, I'm talking of pollution, of course. So if you burn fossil energy, you have a certain type of uh, pollution Solution that is, um, if it is in a, in a big density produced, uh, unfavorable for the uh, Earth's ecosystem for some time. And you have to just take that into the equation. Okay, that's, that's fair enough. And I'm all for uh, approaching things in a, in a balanced way. I think, I think I definitely agree that sustainability has been this buzzword that, you know, doesn't really mean anything anymore. Maybe a better way to to put it would would be sort of balanced you know that's what we're looking for here is is some sort of balance and homeostasis with the planet um the, just one thing i'm gonna forgive me because i will play a little bit of devil's advocate <laughs> with with some of this stuff because i want to refine my own understanding first and foremost so something that i didn't uh, see clearly until uh, a bit more recently was was this because you said there that pollution is caused by burning these hydrocarbons but what i noticed uh when the lockdown happened was that these graphs these satellites pictures were were coming out and saying oh wow look at the pollution it's not there anymore and they weren't actually measuring co2 they were measuring uh nitrogen dioxide i believe so that was a real aha moment for me because i was like oh i always thought co2 was responsible for pollution but based on that it doesn't appear to be so and don't get don't get me uh don't misconstrue what i'm saying here i'm not saying there are no ramifications and consequences of burning hydrocarbons but that seems like a pretty basic thing that i wasn't aware of um what's, what's your understanding of, of 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 pollution and and how that fits into to co2 emissions yeah, that's another thing. Uh, you also have to know exactly what, what pollution is. Pollution has a bad negative connotation, first of all, right? You are, you are making something not healthy and tidy, which was healthy and tidy before. Uh, that's what pollution sounds like for most uh, people, right? Uh, but if you look, for example, at the Earth situation a couple of million years back, uh, some volcanoes uh, were definitely producing pollution, right? <laughs> the, uh, the stuff that they were spitting out of uh, their uh, core, uh, the magma and the sulfur gases and also CO2, uh, changed the atmosphere of, uh, of the Earth. And uh, so if you consider sane and healthy, a thriving ecosystem with trees and a lot of biodiversity and then you come here comes this vol this prehistoric volcano that brings out these ashes uh, it's it's pollution right well that's interesting because right i just got to stop you there because like you say pollution mm -hmm. has a lot of negative connotations and is it is it fair to say that volcanoes pollute because it depends on which perspective you're coming at it from, right? In terms of 
that there's there's plenty of examples of the soil being incredibly fertile around volcanoes because of the biochar that's in the soil right so yes in that moment when it's spitting out all that stuff you know it's in the clouds it's in it's it's, it's you know it's it maybe acid rains coming down you know yes there are some negative connotations but if we look at it in a holistic way is it fair to call a natural process pollution exactly that's why I gave this example, because um, also the produce, pollution we produce now by burning these fossil fuels, um, it, is, it has an effect. So you always have to look at cause and effect. Uh, um, the um, volcano spits out the stuff, uh, and the effect is Im immediately that uh, biodiversity and life dies. Uh, then when it's settled, uh, life comes back, maybe even stronger because of the fertilization, as you mentioned. And then also now we, we burn these fossil fuels, and there's no denying, I think, uh, that uh, that we burned so much over the last uh, 200 years that the atmosphere uh, has changed. Uh, and not because the atmosphere changed um, in a cyclic way, but because we burned these fossils much, much more than we did centuries before. So it has an effect on the atmosphere. Now, is that desirable for us? That's the question. Is it we even measurable? Do you, do you even believe that is even really measurable in terms of teasing out how much of this change is natural and how much of this change is contributed by man's efforts to burn fuels, etc.? Yeah, uh, that's that's complicated. Um, and, and that's why I think, as I said before, the UN has a very important role here in bringing scientists from all over the world together uh, to, to have this data nicely presented. So it, it seems because we're not measuring until that long time, but it seems like since um, the beginning of the industrial age, uh, there was more science around and there were some measurements being done. And the weather changes and the concentration of CO2 in the uh, certain atmosphere uh, layers has been increasing uh, a lot over the last 100 years, a lot. So that's, that's measurable. And now you can ask the question, is this natural or is it not natural? But since it coincides with the industrial revolution and the burning of all the fossils, it, it is the first thought that comes to mind is that, yeah, it's because of our consumption of these fossils, yes. But is that not a narrow perspective to hold? Time has been, you know, goes, goes a long way back and, and these the thing that really gets me is that these processes that are underway on earth with tectonic shifts and plates moving, these are such gigantic processes that take tens and hundreds and even millions of years to evolve over time. So, you know, it's, it, it seems to me, this is just my feeling that it's, it's a little bit quick to jump the gun to say, hey, we're going to start uh, recording this stuff and looking at when industrialization happened and then, oh, the carbon in the atmosphere has increased since then. You're, you're looking at a very small window there. And I just feel uh, it's important to really take a holistic uh, a view of, of, of how these processes work and then another thing I would also like to put to you which is a big critique of the climate change narrative is that there is actually a lot of evidence of global greening happen so in India and, and China there is a lot of greening that's actually taking place by virtue of this 
carbon that's in the air and obviously plants are retaining this carbon and and using it for their own photosynthesis so um sorry i've thrown a couple of things at you there yeah no i think a holistic view i think was the first no on the climate change debate and uh, i'm all for that and i also believe that the scientists engaged in this they take a holistic view some of them <laughs> and then you can also see how the nar narrative is twisted but uh, the scientists themselves they sit in their uh, institute right and and they do their thing uh, they are not they're not bothered by politics uh, so they also took a holistic view and they looked at what are the tectonical shifts where was this volcano and could this have affected the increased co2 concentration in the atmosphere also over the last 100 years this has been looked at and so there wasn't as much activity that would suggest that the concentration comes only from these uh, things. So the, the human aspect uh, of it, at least for the last 200 years, is, is, is obvious to the scientists. So let's take, take this. And also these other, as you said, uh, elements that change the climate of the Earth uh, for as long as it existed, they took, they took some time huh, to, <laughs> to develop. Uh, and uh, of course, we don't have the data, uh, some of it which we find in geological formations or whatnot, but we cannot say for sure as we do now measure the atmosphere. But these things took time, except an, an, an asteroid came onto Earth and, and suddenly uh, made the whole world dark. <laughs> but other than that, these things evolve and take time. Ice ages, they take time. Um, so that nature and, and especially us humans could adapt to it. Uh, but now here with the climate change, it is rather fast and uh, we're probably doing it upon ourselves. That doesn't mean it's, it's a bad thing. We have to scream and shout and everybody is bad who is not accepting that. That I think is uh, over the top and doesn't help at all. But as I said in the beginning, cause and effect. We seem to cause this. It has this and this effect. So let's take this into consideration. That's it. But we can also say, yeah, climate changes. And uh, so what? We burn the fossil fuels now for 300 years. We see what happens and then we continue on. This is also an approach we could take, but we have to agree on it, you know, worldwide. <laughs> Some say, no, 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 I want to protect. And others say, yeah, let's play. Let's, let's throw the fossils out and see what's next. Uh, so you could do either thing. We just have to be conscious that if you do one thing, there's an effect. And so also the example that you brought with uh, India, so yes, climate change uh, has not only um, undesirable effects for, for humanity. Uh, so, for example, big parts of Russia will now become arable. Is that nice for Russia? Oh, yeah, super, super nice. <laughs> and other things uh, like the Sahara is extending. Is that nice for African countries? No, it's not. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> You cannot say climate change is generally a, a bad thing, but you also cannot say that it is a good thing. Something has a cause and an effect. And you look at this and then you decide as humanity what to do. But since we all come with our particular little interests, uh, Russia with his and then the African state that is losing arable land with, with, with its own, um, then you, you're not working together as humanity. You're working together as uh, divisive nation states and try to resolve an issue that is transboundary affects everyone so th that's uh, that's why i think that um, within the united nations system as beautiful as it is uh, we haven't advanced much because it consists still of nation states and they play for themselves yeah you make a really uh, important point there in we always want to see 
good or bad, don't we? We, we? we grossly oversimplify these very, very complicated issues and, and it throws out any possibility of nuance. And uh, I think we'll get to the climate hysteria um, relatively soon. But um, there's, there's, I guess, uh, a couple of things I'd like to explore just before we get there, because it might help give a bit more context to, to that hysteria. My, my question to you is, can we control nature? Because if as admirable as it is that the UN wants to work together and we want to help uh, desert, desertification, even though they don't seem to always speak about some of these things as much as I maybe would like them to, um, you know, are we banging our heads against the wall by our hubris that we believe we can control nature and and turn this dial of temperature down and suddenly everything's hunky-dory what do you think yeah that's that's a beautiful question you're putting there because that is at the heart of what i asked myself also over the last uh, years when i was working at the united nations for environment protection uh can we control nature? Can we manage nature? Also a question that Goethe asked, uh, by the way, in his books. And I believe we can't. No, it is too complex. It's something so complex that our human mind cannot fathom it, cannot understand it completely. And to do micromanaging in the environment scale is, for us humans, is arrogant. It's yeah, really I arrogant. couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree we more. Don't, and... We don't, yeah. It ties into my next point, which is, as you said it perfectly, we cannot grasp all the variables. Our monkey minds are not designed that way. We perceive patterns in things and it's impossible to really actually have a holistic view because we're not privy to all the variables. So this is what I think undermines mm -hmm. um, our efforts here in that what we what we see take place in science and this actually is is true for covid as well is we have all these self-professed uh people who who are prof uh, who are prophets now you know by virtue of modeling and what people don't seem to grasp is that modeling is extraordinarily unreliable by virtue of the fact that we can't see all the variables right like these are man-made models that are dependent on data inputs that are coming from the monkey mind and a limited perspective. So how can we have any trust in these models, whether it's, you know, COVID deaths that are predicted or whether it's, you know, climate change and we're all going to live underwater in the next 50 years. It's, I think this is something that A, contributes to the, to the hysteria and actually undermines the, the, general public push towards doing something better and making progress in some of these aspects because it, it i feel like it's just such a big handicap to throw these models out there and all it really does is generate fear and and, and a lot of irrational fear it doesn't seem to be conducive to anything what do you think yeah oh yeah science is um Science is such a, an important aspect of our human existence, uh, but now it has gotten put on a pedestal 
where it creates maybe more damage than, than good uh, for the first time. So because um, science is made by the human mind uh, and uh, it is constantly evolving. Many scientists understand that also, by the way. They see that they come up with a model and know that this model is, is okay for now, we can work with it, but it will probably be disproven. Give it a couple of years, maybe only months, and somebody will find that it's not here good in this direction and brings another model, another model, anti-thesis, thesis, and so on. And we, we develop this. No, this is how science worked. If you look at science 600 years back, uh, the science 100% uh, proved that the earth is flat. So uh, now, you wouldn't, of course, say that this was very scientific, but at this moment, it was scientific. So all the stuff, the latest that we come up with now will not look very scientific <laughs> in, in, in the future, but for now it is. So um, that, I think, should give us this sense of this humbleness towards science, which is we, we, we develop the science or we use the empirical data that we produce and, and make uh, models that help us as a tool to exist in this material world. But we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that uh, this is the only solution forward. Uh, and, and we have understood nature, understood health, understood life, because there are more aspects to it that we have to take into consideration. We can use these material science tools to guide us in one way or the other, but we shouldn't let out our, uh, now we come into a different sphere. It, our, our intuition of, of, of life, we shouldn't uh, not take this into the equation. We should also take this into the equation here. And, and we don't, uh, we rely completely on the science and, and that gives us the hysteria that we, and the fear that we are in now, yes. Humility is the key word there. If, if yeah. you are a, 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 an advocate of science, then you are by nature humble because as you perfectly said, science is just constantly disproving hypotheses you know you're constantly evolving you're constantly disproving things there's no such thing as established science it's constantly evolving and this is my big criticism of the models because they're taken as gospel they're taken as real data and and it's just it's just abjectly false you know there was this is a little bit of a tangent, but I feel like it's it's relevant to some degree. So last week there was an engagement on Twitter between a uh, journalist and one of the modelers for the for Sage, which is the advisory group for um, for the British government on on COVID, and he he fully admitted that they are only asked to model bad situations. They are paid to model disaster. And when asked, mm. when asked why he didn't present the models for the more optimistic cases, he just flat out said, we're not paid to do that because the politicians need information that they can act on. In other words, they need to justify their job so they need data that justifies their job to meddle and to, you know, make mandates and policy, etc. They are not paid on the basis of doing nothing, which in, in a lot of aspects would be less harmful, which just, I mean, to, for, for the actual scientist to come out as clean as he did, uh, people can find that article on, on The Spectator. I uh, forget his name. I think it was Fraser. Fraser Nelson was the was the guy who had the the engagement. But really mind blowing how how you know how how 
malevolent <laughs> that that incentive is there to to go and 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 be so heavily biased and skewed towards a certain narrative yeah <clears throat> well i didn't know that uh, that's a blatant uh, example of the abuse uh, of scientific uh, research for sure uh, but also in the environment sphere, because we were talking about this earlier, um, we could get into COVID also, but in the environment sphere, there's also this urge of the politicians uh, that I experienced in my life also is to have data that they can work with. Give me the data I can work with, because I don't know what to do with my politics. Uh, my polit I, I need data, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, the idea of that politics doesn't always have to rely on data. Go with your common sense, with your life intuition, with your your love with your um, interest of making society uh, function better. Unfortunately, the there's, a, there's a deficit of that in the world at the moment, my friend. <laughs> there is a deficit, yes. Uh, you should get this also into your equation. It doesn't say you should only base your political decisions on, on feelings and stuff like that. No, feelings is a different story. We have to go into this maybe also at some point. But you also have to base your politics on something else than only science. Let's put it this way at the moment. Um, and uh, that needs to be seen clearly because of the fact that models and all scientific uh, proof is not a proof anymore in a couple of years. Yeah, definitely. This fact alone should tell you no. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't put my freedom, let's say, at risk. My, the long-fought uh, uh, freedom uh, for for humans to exercise uh, their will and wishes in society. I cannot jeopardize this by a couple of models that have come out now and are producing a big, uh, a big, big fear worldwide. Uh, I cannot uh, easily, uh, let's say, uh, put freedom at risk just because of some science uh, that has come out and might be wrong in a couple of years. Who knows? So the fact alone that this might be wrong at some point gives us the humility, as you said, to um, not take it as the only measurement on which I base this, base my poli my political political decision. Yeah, that's perfectly perfectly reasonable, which is uh, a rare commodity in the world we live in. So, oh, on that point, climate hysteria. What hmm. do you, what do you make of this clown world we seem to be living in? You know, where Greta Thornburg's being rolled out left, right, and centre, and making everyone feel very guilty about you know living life and uh don't get me wrong look I've, i fully agree that mm -hmm. the, the the consumer the con the the rampant consumerism that we live in and this throwaway culture and very short-term orientated mindset that many people have to their lives is is extremely devastating to uh, on a personal level and and on a collective level but i just cannot buy into this narrative that we are going to destroy the world and it ties back in for me to to this can we control nature you know the earth's going to be here no matter what like mm. so arrogant to me to say that we're going to destroy the planet you know the mycelium network's going to be there deconstructing all our decomposing <laughs> dead bodies and and re regenerating <laughs> the soil with all the new building blocks it doesn't matter what we do in the grand scheme of things this is just my personal opinion because ultimately the the earth will the earth is bigger and larger and a process than we are and and yes sure we can we can live more in more equilibrium and balance with it but i just 
I refuse to to buy into the hysteria. How 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 have you experienced the hysteria in the UN? Is there any hysteria? I don't even know if that's if they maybe take a bit more of a balanced approach on things. And and how do you see the 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 debate and the topic? How it's it's presented in the media? The media, yeah, as as so many things, uh, it is presented as hysteria, and um, I think globally uh, it is. You could say it is a hysteria, uh, climate change at the moment. Yes. Um, I would say, as I said in the beginning, cause and effect. If you consume as much as we do uh, at a scale that we do, it has a certain effect. Let's look at the effect, what it is, and what it means for life on Earth, for us humans, <laughs> not for anything, for us humans. What does it mean? And then when we come to a certain conclusion, then we act uh, accordingly, but also don't think that this conclusion that we made is the is the almighty and only conclusion and keep in mind that also this intuitive aspect once again but uh, that, that's what we need to look at also with climate change um so uh i lost a little bit the yes greta thunberg and this ah yeah the whole narrative about we're destroying the earth the planet uh, no this has to stop <laughs> please this has to stop we are not destroying the planet and as you said at all we're destroying our own existence perhaps uh, but even there i think a couple would remain and then uh, noah you know uh, collects his species and builds a new world so it's not so it's not so easy to to make us uh, go extinct i think but of course it's undesirable you don't want uh, mass murder on, on the planet uh, you don't so you try to make uh, take certain measures so this is not happening uh, but the hysteria is definitely too much yes and uh, the hysteria again comes with the with the club of morality as usual no <laughs> if you don't do this you're a bad person if you do consume if you fly with if you take a plane it's uh, you're such a bad person so then this is used so we are turning around in circles <laughs> uh, if it's one topic or the other topic, COVID or uh, uh, climate change or racism, we are always turning around in the same type of circle and uh, we're not producing any viable results. That's a uh, fact of the matter. I really like what you said there about moralizing and it, 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 it means that there can be no dialogue as well, you know, when there's this putting yourself on the pedestal that you do the right thing and people should be judged because of how they live their life and it's just this it's so gross it's such a gross moralizing you hit the nail on the head and it's interesting for me that that doesn't just run true in the climate hysteria you're seeing it very pervasively in in the covid hysteria you know you well, I don't even want to want to go into that can of worms personally. So uh, we'll move on from that one. So when when you had, can you describe the maybe the moment or the there's probably more than one moment um, when you when it started to dawn on you that we can't control nature and and maybe speak to your own personal experience uh, of, of how that affected some of your life choices and 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 the direction of travel for you yeah well yeah what it, it dawned on me yes i think i had always had the 
a feeling for that we cannot control nature. And then I saw that with the policies that we have on the national and international level, we are trying to micromanage uh, the environment. And um, because the narrative was so strong and I wanted to work in that field, I, I thought, okay, maybe there's some truth to this. Maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong, you know? So I, I explored it, but um, I was always skeptical. And now I am. I think it's, it's clear that we cannot manage uh, the environment. We cannot manage life because it's bigger than our minds. And because the only way we can manage is with our minds. Um, so that's that's one thing uh, I wanted to say there. What was the other question, uh, Sony? How how did that manifest that that understanding? How did it manifest in your personal life choices? Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, well, if you realize that you cannot manage uh, everything and you're maybe destroying more than you create any good, then uh, you you can only help people to understand their behavior in society and uh, then we come to a different topic, but uh, to understand in which predicament, in which uh, misery they are in themselves, and then help them to find a solution to get out of this. And by virtue of that, automatically, you are, let's say, doing more useful things uh, for living in tune with nature and with the environment than as if you would be managing it. Uh, with with a morality conflict in your mind. <laughs> uh, so um, basically, I, I realized that to go about this these issues, these problems that we are facing, which is peace in the world and sustainability, we cannot go about it only with material politic means, uh, measures uh, of, of that kind. We also have to look into our consciousness into our minds uh, and, and observe ourselves very objectively what it is that we are doing there. Uh, and, and only then when we internalized uh, our own um, part in this, when we have seen it clearly, then we can adjust uh, without having a conflict, uh, a moral conflict within us that, uh, that that only creates division in the world. Ah, now I touched so many things <laughs> that it is difficult to uh, to grasp, perhaps. Uh, but this uh, realization shaped my my recent actions uh, in the world. Uh, yes, so I'm 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 away from the United Nations now to a big extent, and uh, work more on the inner health of, uh, of of people of myself also yeah interesting so would it be fair to say that the understanding of we cannot control nature led you to reverse engineer the question what is our nature uh, within oneself is that sort of the process you under undertook yeah, this question was a big part uh, of my move to go to the uh, inwards, <laughs> to realize what is going on with myself as member of society that shapes our actions as a, as a whole society, as, as humanity. Um, I, I don't want to exclude myself from that development. Uh, if you use the moral example, you automatically say that you know what is right, the others don't. And then you stop looking at yourself because you know you, you do everything right. Uh, but I 
wanted to also, but it sounds like, a, okay, but I, I also wanted to see what is my role in this. Because not only because I, I thought it from this big uh, macro standpoint that I want to see how peace and sustainability is achievable, I also saw it in my own personal life. So the lifestyle that you lead, if you are a successful career professional <laughs> in, in the political sphere or in the business sector, whatever, um, does something to you, right? Uh, so I experienced, for example, uh, lots of work. It's not very conducive to health. It's not very conducive to relationships uh, with other people. Uh, you can lose yourself uh, easily. And um, if you want to get out of that spiral, you have to ask very um, honest, uh, open questions uh, to yourself because there nobody else can, can help you. If you are working, uh, let's say, 12 hours a day and uh, you have a bad relationship with your, with your wife and uh, you, your children are not doing uh, anything that you agree with <laughs> and, uh, and, and you, are, uh, you have no energy um, and you're, you are angry at everything and all people uh, that, that you interact with, then something is wrong, of course. So, but uh, there you have to be very open and say, okay, what is my role in this? And so this led me to uh, that path as well. So it wasn't only the macro perspective, how is humanity going to be peaceful? No, it was also my own experience, my own health, my own relationships that led me into exploring this uh, pathway. Well, the two are inextricably linked, right? Because yeah. I think what you're describing is this understanding that there cannot be change in the world without first changing oneself from, from the inside and, and understanding these motivations that we have to do certain things and these, these attachments to ideologies or emotions uh, whatever that that experience is within our own individual consciousness and i think that's something really powerful and something that these moralizers really fail to understand is that by by seeking to control nature and and society and people and and, and judging you're actually pushing away that which you're seeking to manifest in the world it's it's it sounds paradoxical but that's mm -hmm. just me speaking from personal experience of how this works is that you you have to first deal with all your own bullshit you know you can't just be the president, the prime minister, take your pick, the CEO, whatever your position and role in society may be, you cannot go forward in, in a harmonious way if there is no harmony within yourself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And what, uh, what leads you to go in explore this pathway is you have to be really honest uh if you work 20 years on your oil spill preparedness protocol and plan and it's not implemented then then you cannot just say oh well good work you know uh, you have to be see okay right didn't work uh I, I i'm the good guy no well yeah you are the good guy but something didn't really work so let's let's face it what what didn't and then let's look at it clearly because what then happens is you want to protect yourself. You want to protect your efforts. You want to protect your status. And of, so you cannot 
admit then that something maybe didn't go uh, in the desired direction. So as long as you cannot admit that, you're not open to looking for a solution. You're not. Yeah, uh, and really so this is, but this is a purely introspect uh, thing. Uh, and the same for personal and personal life. If you want, uh, you are unhappy, you, you are uh, angry with your children, uh, you, your relationships are not going, going well, um, and, and you have health problems, your back hurts at all times, then uh, you have to see that, okay, I might have done something in my life that caused this cause and effect. And if I did this, then only me can change it. Uh, that hurts because that means I didn't always do everything right, which I was always supposed to be. Everybody told me in school and in family, you have to be, you have to be good, you have to do this right, you have this responsibility, and so on. And uh, and that that prevented you from admitting that you might have done something that was not so desirable. Uh, but here you come to that point where you see things do not work, and the only question that can help you forward is, what is my role in this? And then you look at it afresh, and then the new pathway unfolds. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the definition of insanity, right? Is uh, to to repeat over and over again, expecting different results. And I think what you speak to there is uh, the sunken cost of that's associated with. Um, with the sort of institutionalization of people, you know, you could have easily stayed in the UN after 15, 20 years, however long you've been there. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm this, this person in this role in this society and reinforced all that time and energy that you've, that you've invested in, in that pathway. And you could have easily stuck with that, you know, like you're, you, you carved out, uh, a good living for yourself you know i'm sure all your family was super proud of you and etc cetera, etc cetera. as by by society's yardstick you are the epitome of success however when i imagine when you started looking inwardly you realized hold on a minute that notion of success doesn't mean shit to me it's not how i value myself yes. my <laughs> my my quality of life my my health you know maybe what i thought was success is not what that means to me uh, personally maybe my definition of success is, is different and it's really powerful and really courageous what you're saying and and also how you're living because you actually took a step back and evaluated and you know like you say was was very honest about the direction of things and, and asking yourself some really tough questions, uh, which I imagine were along the lines of, am I doing any good here? Could I be doing good in another way, in a, in a different, in a different way, which maybe is more aligned with my values and, and my ethics. So it's uh, that's, that's the, the evolution, isn't it? The, the rabbit hole we go down on a personal level that leads us to strip away these attachments and this identity that we, uh, we become so invested in because uh, a lot for a lot of people and uh, myself included, you know, you, you, there was a time when, when I was very, uh, I found a lot of security in some of these things, you know, and, and, 
it's a it's a very much a, a a feedback loop that that reinforces these things, which is inevitably why when you do step back and evaluate and and are critical with an objective and honest mind, can be can be quite disruptive. So go yeah. in. So, yeah, just disruptive. <clears throat> so that how was that for you? Like untethering yourself. And, and realizing that the UN was not was not this uh, it didn't align with that image uh, that that you went into uh, the job having of, of the UN and what it is and and what what's what's your image now uh, not specifically about the UN but just just life more more broadly how because you, you, I imagine you still have that that driving motivation. I imagine within you, there's that question of why are we not peaceful? How do we be more cooperative? I imagine that that is still a very much a, a burning question within you. So, how how have you sought to realign your your life with with those values? Yes. Yeah, you're very right. This is still um, at the core of my uh, being. Yeah, these questions. <laughs> so that hasn't changed. Uh, it's just the approach uh, of how I think uh, we as humanity can approximate that goal uh, um, has changed for me. So, uh, yes, as you said, I had a perfectly successful lifestyle from seen from the outside. I worked there at the United Nations, possibility of long term engagement. Uh, and having all these benefits, living in different countries in the world. Um, and um, I had a relationship that was very stable and it was all going right towards being, you know, normal, <laughs> as we first perceived normal as a, as a very stable family situation with these jobs and uh, looking all very good. But somehow something uh, drew me away from this. And uh, in the process, that was uh, difficult for me because I was going for some years uh, against uh, the grain. Yeah, for sure. I continued working for the UN, but I decreased my engagement more and more um, so that I have time to explore the, the other side of things. I call it the, the inward side of things because I had a hunch that this is not only necessary for my personal development uh, myself uh, as, a, as a person, but also to answer that question of sustainability and peace, uh, I have to go inwards. And so I split my time between working at the UN part-time and exploring the other path. Um, and uh, yeah, I did Vipassana uh, meditation and went to several courses there. I traveled uh, to, to India also for that purpose. Ah, there's so many things uh, I could tell about this path, but it took me a, quite a road. And now I got so much confidence on that path that I can do uh, better things for achieving this goal of sustainability and, uh, uh, and peace when I uh, pursue uh, the inward road more, also on a professional level, perhaps, if I can make it a profession. So I, I took the courage now to uh, get rid of the UN side completely and only focus on the inwards exploration uh, side. And uh, well, not only for myself, but I want to share it with other people uh, because I believe that this is what needs uh, to come first before we can talk about any outside organization of things. For example, how's the UN? How should the UN look like? How could it be more democratic? The question that underlies uh, before we start uh, doing that is: What does our human mind 
uh, do to mess things up? <laughs> That's the first question we have to resolve. Once we know this, then we can get back into designing our society models or whatnot with the understanding that first we have to be healthy inside before we struggle all this uh, with all this, because otherwise we are setting off with the wrong foot. No, that's how it's called. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, it, it, I feel like it brings us nicely back around to how we started, where I was just befuddled at the impossible task of harmonizing all these competing interests because what, what the way I see it, the way we can uh, reverse engineer this problem is that if people have done the internal work and sat with their demons and understand their emotions and their 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 the malevolence uh, that is 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 potential that has potential within all of us you know there's there's darkness within all of us and it should be celebrated and explored not uh, put in a box and and repressed uh, it makes me just wonder yes. how different society would be able to communicate if we'd process that stuff a lot more you know those meetings you sat on those those presentations how much more would they have resonated how how much more cooperative and how much more conducive these these meetings would have been if people were on a more stable uh, footing and 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 had stronger spiritual foundations in all honesty and 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 because by virtue by virtue of that you speaking from personal experience that the, the harmony slowly but surely permeates your being and it life becomes way easier because you've you you've explored the discomfort and you you're starting to become comfortable in the uncomfortable nature of being human because what happens a lot of the time the reason people act out and are destructive and do all these things is because it's coming from within themselves and they're they, they don't know it. It's, it's in the subconscious or the unconscious mind, however you want to call it. And, you know, it brings me back to what you were saying about that, that, that guy who just flat out sabotaged things at the meeting because and threw away all the basic premises and principles because of some ulterior motive. You know how it just makes me wonder of the potential of, of someone like that to to have that breathing space to reflect on why they're doing what they're doing and give them give, give the individual a chance to take a more cooperative and harmonious approach to communication mm, yes uh i think we cannot really even imagine how different our interaction and communication would be if we had first done this work uh, on ourselves. Um, and later it will not be work anymore. It will be um, just there, intuitive. I think for later generations, uh, this is not work anymore. For us now it is work, this inner work. But uh, so if, if we did this, I think the our action society communication would be so, so different uh, and much, much more easy, much easier for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's it's hard to imagine, isn't it? I mean, we're so caught up in this fear-based survival mode, yes. and and it's ironic, really, because life has not been like has not been this comfortable and luxurious for for a vast majority of people for for a long, long time. You know, yet we're still in this fight or exactly. flight mindset 
and we don't really understand yeah. this uh, this volcano of emotions that that sort of lays dormant until something triggers it um so yeah it's, it's something I, I think about a lot and uh and and it probably will take generations uh to to really build upon these things it's this it's changed that that really doesn't happen overnight right like we've probably both been through a similar process that's taken mm-hmm. oh, it's taken a long time to unfold and it and um why why do you think that they won't call it work like it's funny because i i think that's the common word that we use for for working on ourselves and uh, admittedly work is a really shitty word that is used in so many different contexts that it doesn't really carry the gravity of of what or the accuracy more of, of what we're saying so what, what did you mean by that did you were you just saying that it will come more naturally to later generations yeah that's what I hope <laughs> and, and what I think will be happening when we are um, doing the right uh, work now. Uh, so I, that's why I want to focus my life uh, on this foundation, on the spiritual stability, um, on the inward exploration of issues that concern humanity ever since and this is fear love this has to be looked at very closely and not just by an artist who is smiled upon uh, once in a while and oh he created this beautiful play when he uh, talked about love no we have to integrate this into our daily uh, life and also into our education system these questions because they are the basis of our interaction and they uh, if they're not addressed create the mess that we are in and we can create the most beautiful uh, society models where communism, uh, democracy, or what, whatever. There will not be a system that will work unless we have um, figured out our, um, uh, system, yeah, uh, what did you call it, spiritual uh, stability. Absolutely. And so that's why I want to invest all the rest of my life into this uh, question. Because then I will, I think we will produce, uh, or we will give the next generations the basis from which uh, they can uh, work on. And then, if you if you learn all this, first of all, of course, in your parents' uh, family situation, but then also in school, uh, if if you have such a thing as a public school still, or you, you leave it to a couple of private schools that address these things, if you you come out as a different human being uh, then and then you will be acting completely different uh, in the world Um, and then you will also not project your inner uh, divisiveness into onto organizations Uh, because this person for example who was in this meeting um, destroying uh, a lot of the progress that we have made uh, in, in previous years, he, it was his job to do so. No, <laughs> uh-huh. I, maybe uh-huh. ne- maybe not necessarily. It was his uh, idea of doing it like this. Uh, probably not. Maybe maybe he had a hard time doing it, but it was his job. But it, it was projected onto the organization. In this case, the nation state. The nation state had an issue with another nation state. And it felt embarrassed by the other nation state in a different diplomatic context. That is why the nation state had to fight back in this forum and use this uh, person (laughs) in the government, this government official, to exercise the task. So the nation state was behaving like um, a a hurt child. 
in the nations, it doesn't even exist. You know, we, we, we made it up. <laughs> and then we project our hurt feelings onto the nation state and make normal people carry it out. And this seems so absurd if you look at it from a bit of a distance uh, that, that you can only smile at it. Uh, but, but this is what we do. So if we fix this, um, our minds, if we are, we don't have to fix them, they are there. If we understand our minds, if we understand our body, if we understand what we are, what love is, and what life means, then uh, we will not make these mistakes. We will not run around like misguided uh, missiles, uh, but we will just be acting accordingly and clearly. And we will not project our inner issues onto organizations. We will not divide anymore. And so how does this world look like? Pfft, I don't know, beautiful probably. And we don't need to know how it looks like because everybody wants to know now, oh, how does the new world look like? Which society model is it? Who does what? Yeah, we'll figure it out. Uh, first, let's uh, live an easy uh, life and uh, live with love and, uh, and happiness. It definitely feels like we're laying foundations for a new system, a new perspective, a new approach to this thing we call life, uh, <laughs> which is a real, real roller coaster. And um, something that's really stood out to me with with politics and governments, especially in the last two years, is that. Governments are a reflection of the collective unconscious and they really embody all the stuff we don't want to look at. And the reason there is such rampant corruption and, and like you say, divisiveness and uh, self, just, just ruthless self-interest in government is, is actually all of our responsibility is because we all allow this to happen. We're all responsible for this collective. And it's because of decades and decades of apathy, apathy towards, to, towards coordinating the community, right? Like people are not interested in politics. And I'm not saying politics is the answer, but, but, but being disinterested in politics is definitely not, uh, not, not good in terms of having an understanding of, you know, what's going on in the world and, and by virtue of that within, within the individual. And um, yeah, this, this, this perspective that I have of, of the government being the collective unconscious has really uh, made me think a lot because maybe maybe this political system could be really harmonious i mean we uh, i won't go into a, mm. a a rant and a critique of it right now but maybe it could be if if the if the actors were were harmonious and and you know um honest and 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 had a had a had a really virtuous a lot of virtues in their in their value hierarchy you know if they really had that driving question that i think we both have of how do we be peaceful how do we cooperate if that was their honest main priority then then maybe this system would work and and maybe i would be a lot less critical of it but that's not the situation we find ourselves in and it leads mm. to it leads to some deeper questions about our systemic structure and and it's something that's fascinated me too for, for from a young age was this idea of systems and and how 
how is how's this system work why is it so seemingly unjust and 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 not really progressive right like it doesn't seem like things are getting better generally all right you know the phones that we have in our pocket are better than they were 20 years ago but technologies is on that train anyway it's, it's it's going in that direction anyway you know are we really progressing this is something that i'm exploring a lot at the moment and and that should be a bit of a wake-up call for people why are we not progressing so much why is homelessness in the uk yeah. like at, at record highs you know what's going on here is this is it all the politicians thought? I think that's lazy. I think that's easy to say that. Don't get me wrong. There's some very dishonorable people in governments worldwide, but we have to take personal responsibility for what's going on. And we've spoke a lot of off mic in, in the past of, of what that maybe looks like and sort of exploring this which is really exciting to me right this this idea of what the uh, what a new system could look like what how do we go about that you know how how does this system fall apart and disintegrate and fracture and where does that leave everyone into migrating into a new system you know these are really really big questions with um no real clear-cut answer but nonetheless it seems like that that shift is underway and and that's why it's really cool to speak to you because it's it's obviously underway right like your personal life has been a microcosm of of the greater shift of humanity in my opinion you know you went into uh, this organization which posits itself as peaceful and 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 cooperative and you went in there with genuine uh, motivation and aspirations and you, by virtue of getting involved in that system and process, you became disenfranchised and uh, disinterested in, in that approach to things. And it sort of chewed you up and, and spat you back out. But I, I would argue that it, it really spat out a more beautiful and uh, a, a more motivated version of you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks <laughs> i like to believe that too <laughs> but uh, it was kind of necessary to go that route and uh, i see others do the same and i think it's beautiful to see so you're right there is it's constantly evolving life and systems but uh, there, there is especially now a big uh, shift uh, in, in in society ongoing uh, some like to see it, the others uh, like to turn a blind eye on it because everything has to be okay. But there is movement for sure. Uh, but what I wanted to say here is that a new system is not going to help us. We can uh, invent any new system uh, of politics and uh, society structure, even economy, as long as our um, spiritual stability, let's say, is not there, it will it will. Uh, it will lead to the same results in a while that give 100%. it a couple of decades it will leave this it will come to the same thing so uh, my point also is uh, if we could as you say perhaps uh, live in the current system as it is politically economically if we had a different uh, understanding of, of life uh, and spiritual stability it would look all fine it would be okay i wouldn't not agree that this is the best system we can come up with, uh, but uh, it is. Uh, it, it would work fine. So I think that's why 
these things have to be worked on first, and then we talk about the model, then we talk about the system. Uh, in the meantime, while we're getting there, some systemic changes could help us <laughs> uh, to more easily get to that uh, situation when we're all more conscious of things. Uh, yeah, but generally, I wouldn't put the model and the system, the political system, as the, as the thing to aspire, the change there. Yeah, because you're building a house on sand, right? Like if you haven't yeah, exactly. built, if you haven't built solid foundations in your in your own self, then the the walls are going to start cracking, and you know the the roof's going to start collapsing in on itself. Yeah. So um, it's so important exactly. to have have that strength foundationally. Exactly. That's it. And in order to explore these questions of life and spirituality and uh, the basis of uh, why we're here and what we're doing, for that to explore, you need freedom. Freedom. It's the very basis of everything. If, uh, if you don't have the, the right to openly explore that, uh, you're being judged or maybe punished if you do. Uh, then this route is, is closed. So therefore, I think this current development worldwide is for me so dangerous because it it restricts freedom on a, on a, on a, on unfounded grounds uh, sometimes too heavily, and so this could inhibit uh, this uh, development. And that's why um, I, I would advocate that freedom is at the beginning and at the end of, of all things. And um, that I would like people to be conscious of the fact that the, the, the freedom is what uh, keeps them human. <laughs> so, and, and gives us the possibility to get out of this madness. Uh, so we, we, we shouldn't treat that uh, lightly and, and shouldn't give it up easily. We need this, yeah. we need the freedom to develop. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the time, right? We need the time to venture inward and be able to do this work to to answer these questions i think that's something that's always uh, stood out for me that you know i probably wouldn't have walked this path uh, without going traveling because traveling gave me the time to just disconnect from my identity uh, you know read a bunch of books that i probably wouldn't have read otherwise had a bunch of experiences that i wouldn't have had otherwise and without that time to just do what I want. And like you say, that's why I think it ties into freedom. I, I really wouldn't have uh, accelerated my, my path to understanding myself. Obviously there's a, there's a really long way to go on that one still, but mm. I feel, I feel a lot more confident in my, my understanding of my personal nature and, 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 just the nature of things more broadly in, in the universe as a whole, by virtue of, of coming to terms with, you know, my own, my own strengths, my own weaknesses, my own conditioning, my own bias and demons, etc. So yeah, you're right. Freedom, freedom's an integral component of that. And uh, yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? Whether this uh, restrictive environment that we're living in is 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 helping or hindering this this spiritual evolution or not i'm a big believer that it is actually um precipitating this spiritual revolution i think it's 
it's uh, it's it's encouraging it's encouraging people to think about a lot of this stuff in a way that they haven't really engaged with it before for example the the lockdowns and things as as anti-lockdown as i am and you know wholeheartedly disagree with them there was plenty of reports of people you know finding that time to sit with themselves really beneficial because they got to answer or at least explore some of these more existential questions that they realized because of the hamster wheel and, and running along on the rat race, they didn't really have the time to ask these more fundamental questions about the nature of their reality. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we're, I think we're actually trending in the right direction. I'm actually super positive uh, for the future, even though if you turned on the news with everything, you'd be wholeheartedly depressed and understandably so, because that is a very, a very twisted narrative that um, is not really conducive to, to a healthy perspective or a balanced perspective for many of the reasons we've discussed. So um, yeah, good to, good to unplug from that and, and just do our own thing. And uh, it's very commendable what you're, what you're doing with, you know, making the shift in, in your life. Cause it's easy to talk the talk, but it's a lot harder to walk the walk and it would have been very easy for you to, stay at the UN and moralize and, and pat yourself on the back, like you mentioned, rather than, you know, saying, actually, I'm going to actually do something about this. Yeah, that feels better. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like that you brought up that uh, actually this situation, we find ourselves in restrictions and so on, uh, also trigger a development into the spiritual direction. That's, that's true. Yeah, maybe not for uh, the, the majority of people, but for, for critical mass, perhaps, hopefully. Uh, this, this crisis uh, shows uh, where, the, where the root cause of all this lies and, and the understanding that spiritual uh, topics need to be dealt with in order to uh, get anywhere uh, out of this uh, is, is rising. That is good. It's true. So it probably has to become bad before it gets better <laughs> yeah definitely uh, so, uh, this sounds that sounds positive yeah I, I still think that freedom is important so people shouldn't take it away from themselves too easily uh but um yeah 100 though I, I agree with you yeah i don't like, i'm fully on the same page just uh, the 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 point was just that pain is the highest order of information, you know, and um, sometimes yeah. that's that's the shock that you need to really reevaluate and re deconstruct and then reconstruct. <laughs> you say sometimes, <laughs> yeah. You say sometimes. I think for most of the times it's like this. Pain yeah, is it's the only so. thing that gets us going. So wouldn't it be interesting for an early in an early uh, stage of our life to understand what pain is, what it does to us, because maybe then we don't need pain to develop. We don't need oh. that moment of, oh, uh, a dear person dies or I had a bad disease and so on before I start doing something. Uh, if, if I look at pain, even in an early stage of my life as a teenager before and understand what pain is and how it drives me, then uh, I develop naturally. No catastrophe has to happen to me before I move. What do you think about this? Oh, that's a very deep question. So do you mean do you mean that by virtue of engaging with pain from a young age in a very open and exploratory way that you would naturally reframe the definition of pain in, in such a way that 
seemingly painful situations that I might experience now would would be just like a speed bump in life rather than you know being this dramatic car crash is that what you're trying to say yeah I think that's nicely nicely figuratively put yes exactly so no car crash speed bump is enough to make you going well I I, I tend to I tend to agree um yeah in, in terms of when you engage in for me vipassana especially you know giving you that um that that compass by which to navigate the vicissitudes of life and the the ups and the downs uh, you know the we've spoke about this a lot you know there's no good or bad really you know maybe the the girlfriend who cheated on me was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, but in that moment, the, mm -hmm. the, the pain, the trauma seemed so unbearable. And really, if you zoom out, it was led to a spiritual awakening. So um, I know we've, we've, yeah. we spoke off Mike about a few of different examples of this as well, which is uh, ties back into the UN actually is that example I gave to you of, of Hitler, you know, and, and the wars in Europe, you know, if you look, if you look at that, oh, terrible, 100%, like no arguing what happened there was, was horrific, but zoom out and you've got 70 plus years of peace in Europe when you, you only need to pick up a history book of what's happened in Europe the past 2000 years. And my God, is it messy? So um, mm. it's, it's, yeah, see, we have the old cliche of uh, every cloud has a silver lining and yeah, it's, it's really important to, to be open to other perspectives, right? Like when we get bogged down and tied to one perspective of this pain or this situation, that's when, that's when you get stuck, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're not growing, you're not evolving, but if you can step back and, and this is a real superpower, once you start developing this and, and you can actually, you can actually have a painful experience that you, by virtue of stepping back, you reevaluate that experience and actually find a way to progress and move forward in a way that is beneficial for everyone. And that was really mind blowing mm -hmm. for me because you managed to like recycle this seemingly negative event in your mind in this uh, immersive first person view of it but once you zoomed out and stepped away from it and detached from it suddenly it became an opportunity an opportunity to impart some perspective or some feedback to other parties in a way that might benefit them and my good friend Metab, yes. my good friend Meta put that perfectly. Mm -hmm. He said actually to me, that is freedom. That is freedom. Mm -hmm. In which way? So that if you if you have the choice then of that pain to make something beautiful of it, is is the freedom? Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. That is freedom in the sense that you're free from suffering you're you're liberated right like that is mm. the ultimate freedom suddenly you can recycle negative energy in a beautiful way yeah for sure no that is that is true that is how we at the moment uh, evolve <laughs> uh it's just that everybody would agree now that uh second world war you don't want to have that again 
so you to try your best Ideally uh, to, not, to yeah. prevent it. Um, because if you now say that, oh, well, this is life, you know, look at what good it brought also. <laughs> then you're like, okay, uh, this, is, uh, this is quite um, a let go and see what happens type of approach. Um, uh, which which uh, sometimes the spiritual people are... Um, uh, put uh, th th this argument is put on many spiritual people that they are just like passive and not taking on uh, any responsibility for what's happening in the real world. And um... yeah, it's an important so, point. So, Please don't. So... People, I hope people don't get me twisted. But it wasn't advocating death and atroci atrocities. It was more and and like no, I'm, exactly. I'm, not, I know that. Um, I'm not absolving responsibility for things it's just that if you zoom out far enough the good and bad cease to exist you know yeah. everything is just that, necessary in evolution exactly that is true and now my uh thesis here was that maybe we can we can make it a speed bump no we can soften it instead of it being a, a car crash uh, so if you are, if you learn to observe your body and also your pain, of course, with the sensations on your body um, and, and, and see what it does to you, how it makes you react and that you have full control of this, of your reaction, the freedom that uh, also Meta sp spoke about, then and you bring this into, in, into your daily life in society, then you feel things so much earlier. You don't need a crash. You feel the bump, and the bump is already enough for you to steer in a different direction, to 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 seek for peace again in, instead of uh, conflict and and going until the crash happens. That's what I meant. Yeah, that's, that's so. That's what I think is so so hopeful for me. If you bring this element into society, this understanding early uh, enough, uh, and that's what I want to make a contribution to. Um, then society changes completely and we cannot even understand how it's like you introduce bitcoin into um, into the economic system you have no clue what happens you don't know how it will affect the whole system it will affect it tremendously we cannot even think of all the little niches and and uh, and areas where where bitcoin makes a huge difference so it is a bit um, arrogant again to see to to want a model of how the society should look like in in the future already now you cannot but you know that if people are more aware and more conscious things will change and to the better and that's all and so i, I want to contribute uh, to this now instead of working on the models working in the material world yeah perfectly put it's uh i i still think we need to experience high level pain uh ideally not throughout the entire life obviously but if we can if we can uh if we can be exposed to that at a younger age in a way that we're able to navigate that and react positively then then yeah i think everything gets easier from there out and um yeah it's 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 a it's a really interesting point you make because i don't I don't think we should even we should seek to you know um, remove pain. I think it's important part of of growing. And as we've touched on, you know these these moments of growth do come from this this information yeah. signal of pain. But like you say, if you can yeah. engage with it uh, authentically from the uh, at an earlier point in your life, then maybe 
maybe we can avoid some uh, some car crashes further down the track. Yeah, it's you're more conscious. Exactly. Yeah, you don't avoid pain. No, that's that's no no. <laughs> you're just aware of the pain, uh, and and you see the signals uh, earlier. So uh, you could also apply the example to your health uh, system. You know, if you have a strong body consciousness and you notice that something is off here in my stomach. Uh, then, then you can act immediately. You change your diet, or you go to the doctor if you think it's strong enough and seek rem remediation somehow, remedy somehow. But if you if you're not body conscious and you carry on, carry on be either because you have to or because you just don't feel it, and then uh, when when you go to the doctor, there is this ulcer, and you need to have an operation of some sort, right? So this just this. Um, so so what is pain then? For some people, the pain was already this little bit that made them change the diet and go to the doctor. And for others, the pain was only when it was so bad that they needed the operation. So, so my idea is <laughs> that to bring the to, to be more aware of pain, basically, so that it hasn't doesn't have to go to an extreme for you to change. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, th I think uh, we could also say there is is an ulcer in the, the stomach of the earth, which burst about two years ago. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that was very necessary uh, for our own progress. And, and um, ideally we, we don't have to go through those immense uh, periods of pain, but at, at the very least we should be learning from them right i think that's the point here is is that we can take these things as lessons or we can decide to be a victim and there's not much power in being a victim mm -hmm. you know and uh i think that's 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 definitely a message i'm harping on about is is taking responsibility as you are and uh you know taking taking control of your life and and that's an empowering narrative to me that's what i'm interested in i'm not gonna sit here anymore as i as i used to do and, and be a bit of a keyboard warrior uh back in the day about how messed up the world was i'm just gonna live my life mm -hmm. in the most harmonious way possible and uh, contribute to building a world that I find aligns with my values. That's that's all any of us can do, in my humble opinion. Yeah, no, you radiate the um, the stability, the balance, the kindness, the love from within, whatever it is you're doing, and that permeates culture in a way that makes us more peaceful and sustainable. <laughs> that's very simply put. Uh, but uh, th that's also what I would like to do uh, and that's why I moved here to the Greek uh, countryside, bought a piece of land uh, and want to be more uh, in tune with nature by my own living uh, already uh, and uh, I want to offer here some um, ways to go into exactly such questions of life, love, consciousness and so on. Um, and at the same time, would like to explore how, although we live in tune with nature, we can live as sustainably as possible, just to see uh, how, how it works, so that we can live uh, connected and uh, with the comforts that help us to stay healthy and, uh, and, and happy, but close to nature, because at the moment it's like... Um, it's disconnected. If you, if you want to live completely comfortably, uh, you, you move to a city. 
then you're not in touch with nature too much. Uh, so how can you combine this? These are questions that I would like to explore now. And uh, for example, by being here uh, on my land in Greece. Perfect. Well, very proud of you for taking that leap of faith. And I have no doubt of your future success to build a more balanced lifestyle in a way that is uh, harmonious and in tune with, with how you see the world. So I think that's a perfect point to wrap up, my friend. I really appreciate you and your time today. So, um, yeah, thanks, thanks thanks for joining me again. And uh, we will definitely have more parts to this. I'm sure there's a lot more rabbit holes we could go down. So uh, I look forward to the next Absolutely. One. Yeah, thank you, man. Absolutely. No, we touched so many things. And I think uh, anytime we can pick just one and have another two-hour conversation. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> I look forward to it, my friends. Yes. Me too. Me too. Thanks for bringing it up. Thanks, mate. We'll speak soon. Take care. You too. Bye.